0: All right, let's study the scripture together. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezra this evening. Ezra continues the narrative of Second Chronicles, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, that's kind of the flow here, and we're brought up virtually to the end of the Old Testament period here in these historical books. This is the story of God's people returning from exile. An exile event is a huge event in Old Testament history. And given that it's toward the end of the Old Testament history and in the middle of the Old Testament, it can be a major event that we overlook. I cannot overstate to you the significance of the exile in the history of the Old Testament. You're going to see in Ezra tonight for the first time and then next week in Nehemiah in a more vivid way the fact that the people of Israel return to the promised land with some degree of disappointment. In this evening's passage, one of the texts that we're going to read, they see the foundation of the temple and many of the elders weep at the sight of the foundation. They realize that in their return, they're coming back in a way, that's a, a, a faint shadow of, of what they enjoyed before the exile. Next week in Nehemiah, we'll look together at uh, an older generation that weeps at the sight of the temple completed. It's a faint shadow of the Temple of Solomon that they enjoyed before um, the exile event. They're coming back, but things are significantly different for the people of Israel this time around. Now, there was a lot that they didn't get right upon the return. You think about the history of Israel. What brought them into exile was the sin of idolatry, bowing the knee to pagan idols. The the most literal definition of idolatry is what led the Lord to have them exiled out of the promised land. Now, they came back, and they still had some kinks that needed to be worked out. But one thing was for certain. They would not go the way of idolatry again. In fact, if you travel to Israel today, you'll find that among the Jewish people, there still remain a great number of issues. But one of the sins that will not be named among them is idolatry in the truest sense of the word. After the exile, the construction of high places and uh, temples to pagan gods and idols of various sorts were no no longer an issue for the people of Israel. Seventy years of exile will do that for you. It serves as a stark reminder that this is not a way that we want to go in the future. But here in Ezra and again in Nehemiah next week, we have the history of God's people returning from that 70-year period of exile in Babylon. It's a critical point in the history of the Old Testament. There are really two returns, and there's some debate about this. I think actually three returns, but we'll stick with two here. The first is led by a man named Zerubbabel, and he comes back to rebuild the temple. We have the story of Zerubbabel's return and the beginning of the temple's reconstruction in chapters 1 through 6, and then there's the return uh, of Ezra and others who come along with him, and really the focus for Ezra is not rebuilding the temple, it's rebuilding the people. It's setting the people's heart back on the worship of the one true and living God through the sacrificial system of the temple itself. It's also during the period of Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah that uh, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesy, and Malachi is a part of that period of time as well. So if, you, if you're thinking about where the prophets lay, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi fall within that window of time. They come back, but they come back um, in a less than impressive fashion. It's just a remnant of Israel that really returns to the promised land, and they return there with a great deal of, of burden. They, they return there with a number of, of challenges, and we'll see some of those along the way. Uh, we're going to begin in chapter one. You see under your significant events there, uh, several listed, but the first significant event is Cyrus's decree. Cyrus is king of Persia. Now, there's a great deal of history that's in the background of Ezra and Nehemiah, not just here in the beginning of the book, but throughout the book. There are shifts in leadership that happen in the Persian Empire that aren't noted. You just have different kings that are made reference to his time. Persia, who is going to grant the people of Israel permission to return to the promised land. And not only does he grant them permission to return to the promised land, He grants them the resources or the revenue necessary to begin the reconstruction of the temple in the promised land and various other um, things that will be needed in order for them to be firmly established there in the land. Look at Ezra chapter 1 beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, now listen to this, the word of the Lord uh, spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. That is the prophecy of Jeremiah. So you have a great deal being brought together here. Not only is Jeremiah fulfilled in many ways in Ezra Nehemiah, but Isaiah as well. And the Bible says the Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. Y'all tracking with me? The Lord put it in the mind of a pagan king to issue a decree that would allow that the people of God could return to the promised land. Sometimes I think we get it in our head that God only works through kings that are devoted to him by faith. No, the reality is that God holds the whole world in his hands, and even a knucklehead pagan king will do what God puts in his heart to do. Here God puts it in the heart of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation, and here's what it says beginning in verse 2. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, "...the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth." has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among his people may go, may go, his God be with him, and he may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he lives, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. In so many ways, God is reversing the curse of exile. They're going to go back under the leadership of, uh, of Zerubbabel. Uh, that may not seem terribly significant to you, but if you uh, visit the genealogies of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, those passages that we try not to snore through, you'll note that Zerubbabel is the nephew of King David. He is a descendant of Jehoiachin, the last king of Judah, uh, before the exile, which means this. He is the one in the line of David who was appointed by King Cyrus of Persia to lead the people back into the promised land and to reconstitute the nation. Zerubbabel is the hope of Israel. And he's on his way at this point from Babylon back into the city of Jerusalem. Not only is he returning there, but he's returning there with the support of the Persian Empire. And he's returning there with the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken away years earlier to return them to the house of the Lord. These articles had been a part of pagan idolatry for these years of exile, but Cyrus, because God had put it in his heart, gave them back over into the hands of the Jews that they would deliver them to the temple that had once been the place of God's worship there in, in Israel. It's it's difficult to appreciate how miraculous this really is. This whole business of allowing a people to return to their land and build a temple is is, from the outside looking in, counterproductive to a Persian empire that wants to rule over the whole civilized world. I mean, the agenda of the Persians was to to lord over everything, to amass land and control, to seize authority. And here, Cyrus is doing something that seems completely counterintuitive if your goal is to rule all the world. The only answer as to why he might do such a thing is that the Lord put it in his heart. This event marks a great turning point in Old Testament history. Everything in the Old Testament is oriented around this event, this return to Israel, and it still looms over what we find in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll look at some of that a little later on. In chapter 3, worship is restored at Jerusalem. If you think about this, all of worship in the Old Testament was prescribed for the city of Jerusalem. Being cut off from the city of Jerusalem, being cut off from the temple itself, meant being cut off from worship. It means that you cannot honor the ceremonial or sacrificial commands of the Old Testament. They would dare not establish a shrine or a temple in another location. That's why the northern kingdom was carried away captive. And their construction of even temples outside of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom was a major problem in the history of Judah. So here they are for this 70-year period of exile, cut off from the possibility of worship. They would meet and gather and they would sing. And we have a few psalms that are from that period of exile where the people of Israel gathered by the river Kedar and they would sing and they would worship and they would pray. But to really live up to the expectation of the Old Testament was not a possibility for the people of Israel so long as they existed in exile in Babylon. They return, and in chapter 3, worship is restored in the city of Jerusalem. More specifically, sacrifice is restored. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, they rebuild the altar and begin the process of making certain sacrifices. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, By the seventh month, the Israelites had settled in their towns, and the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Joshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priest along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, Joshua may not mean a whole lot to you, but here's why it's significant. Joshua is one of a, a, a small group of people in the oldest generation in Israel at this point, who was alive before the exile, who lived for the duration of the exile and now has the privilege of returning back to Jerusalem. Not only did he live before and during and after the exile, Jeshua was old enough before the exile that he was actually serving as the high priest. So when they returned to to Jerusalem, Jeshua uh, reassumes the responsibilities of the high priest. This gives the post-exile people of Israel, a real priestly connection with the pre-exile community of God's people in the city of Jerusalem, which is really important. This whole business in the latter part of the Old Testament of who should be the priest is of great importance, and we'll talk about that as we move further along in our study of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. By the time you get to the time of Jesus, there is real controversy about who the legitimate high priest is in the city of Jerusalem, and there's a back and forth that happens in that 400 year period of time between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, where there are various overthrows with regard. to who the high priestly family is. You have a a strictly Jewish tradition that holds that Zadok and the descendants of Zadok would be a priest in Jerusalem. Jeshua would be among those Zadokite priests. And then eventually there is an overthrow that happens by some Hellenistic or Greeks who come in and overthrow the priesthood and they insert their person and they really begin to make over Old Testament religion after a Greek image. Here, the fact that Joshua returns as high priest legitimizes their worship there. They've not just thrown this together haphazardly, but they've honored the command of God and they've honored the the Levitical lineage in that they have a Levitical priest, a suitable priest, a priest with the proper blood flowing in his veins to serve as high priest at this new altar. Jeshua, this priestly connection to pre-exile Israel and all of the promises that attended the pre-exile people, is accompanied here by, again, Zerubbabel, who was the descendant of David and the rightful ruler of the people of Israel. In verse 3, the Bible says, they set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding people's. They're unprotect- they are fear the surrounding people because they're unprotected. If they're on their city walls, they are unprotected. If, if, if the altar itself is not captured or uh, covered by uh, the shell of the temple, they are vulnerable in every way, shape, form, and fashion. They were fearful of the surrounding people, but they persisted in their worship of God. In verse 4, the Bible says they celebrated the festival of booths as prescribed and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as well as the freewill offerings brought to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Every indication here is that the people of Israel early on uh, in their return to Jerusalem made every effort to honor every jot and tittle of the word of God. The fact that references made here to the fact that they celebrated the festival of booths as prescribed by the scripture itself is an indication that, that even the least significant of the ceremonial or sacrificial celebrations were honored among the people. You remember maybe when we were studying back some time ago in uh, in the Kings and even in the Chronicles, if you've been reading along, when Josiah came to be the king of Judah and the book of the law was found, one of the first measures that was taken after the reading of the law was the reinstitution of the Festival of Booths. They had failed to honor that festival, and so they re-implemented that as an example or as an expression of their commitment to every word of God's word. Here, great pain seems to be taken on the part of the people early on in the resettlement of the land that we do precisely what God has commanded us to do. In verse 8 of chapter 3, the Bible says, In the second month of the second year after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who returned to Jerusalem from the captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites who were 20 years old or more to supervise the work on the Lord's house. They've now uh, built the foundation, they have established the altar, and they now begin the process of, of building the temple itself back once more. In verse 11, the Bible says, They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house has been, had been laid. For you musical people, there, there's a, a two part choir here. The Levitical priest would say, Praise the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. And then the congregation of the people would give a shout and they would praise the Lord in the same way, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. Verse 12 says, But many of the older priests, Levites, and family leaders who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this house. But many others shouted joyfully. I, I, I'm going to get ahead here, but I, I think in the resettlement of Israel, what they experience in the promised land comes short of what Jeremiah and other prophets had promised they would enjoy when they, when they re-entered the promised land. In, in other words, there's, there's a missing element. There's something missing. If you read what Jeremiah and Isaiah say about their resettling the land of Israel, what it will look like, even what Zechariah says it will look like in the years after, what we find in Ezra and Nehemiah does not match the description that those prophets offer. I really believe with all of my heart that it's not until Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, it's not until that moment that the fullness of glory and gladness and prosperity that God had promised the people of Israel upon their return from exile was fully realized. I think Jesus represents the, return, the true return of Israel from their exile. And so what Jesus offers the people is something that they couldn't afford by their own construction projects or their fundraising efforts or any amount of labor at honoring God's word. What Jesus did for the people of Israel, only Jesus could do. And this this temple, they're, they're here weeping at the foundation of the temple. It's clear when the foundation's built that it's going to come well short of what Solomon's temple was for them. But what they couldn't have understood in that moment is that one day that temple would be adorned with a greater glory than Solomon's temple ever enjoyed when one day the only begotten Son of God, not just the glory of God descending in a cloud, but God the Son in person, would walk through the gates of that temple and adorn the place with a beauty it had not known before. What, what the people of Israel had in Jesus, or would have in Jesus, and frankly what we have in Jesus, is something our, our, our buildings, no matter how beautifully adorned they might be, could ever, ever, ever think to offer us. So there's a sense of disappointment here even as they return. It's not what it used to be and frankly it never will be again. It doesn't take long when God begins to do something great for something bad to happen. You ever noticed that? Anytime good things begin to happen, good things as in things from God, there's always some hardship that shows up. Somebody always wants to foul up what God is doing. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 4 of our passage. And it happens in such a stereotypical way. Chapter 4 sounds like some Baptist business meetings I've been in the past few years. Chapter 4 and and beginning in verse 1, the opposition shows up. The Bible says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel they approached Zerubbabel and the leaders of the families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Esar of Assyria brought us here. Now, the first thing that the enemy would have done when it comes to halting the work of God is to dilute the work of God by mixing and mingling unbelievers or those not committed to the cause with the cause itself. It's a, it's a deal where if you can't beat them, join them and make them all miserable. And so they, they try to join themselves to the work. Now, there's a lot of directions that we could go here, and there's a great deal of principle to be gleaned with regards to church membership and the great value of purity within the body of Christ. There's an old adage in the newspaper business or news business in general that says the medium is the message. That is, the channel through which the message is communicated says a great deal about the message itself. I I draw on this illustration often. My example is if, if this year you're watching a presidential debate and there are two candidates and they both say, we want to reduce the deficit one is a democrat and one is a republican. Now this is not a political statement, this is just an observation based in fact. And and the democrat and the republican both say we want to reduce the deficit. You're going to know based on that person's background how to interpret what they've said. And the democrat candidate is probably going to mean he wants to raise your taxes and the republican candidate is probably going to mean he wants to cut spending. Now you can disagree about how that needs to happen, that's not my goal here. What I'm saying to you is that you know how to interpret what they say by their platform. The medium is the message. And I am continue to be convinced that one of the reasons that we have such a difficult time at Kingdom Advancement in this country is because people hear what we say with our mouths through the filter of our life experience. They're reading your character into the message that you speak. So they hear us say, repent and believe, but they're interpreting that through the lens of our life. And frankly, sometimes they don't see a lot of repentance, and they don't see a whole lot of faith. And so what they're left with is the assumption that they mean a nominal repentance and belief, a superficial level of repentance and belief that doesn't leave us deeply moved. When when we begin to intermingle ourselves with this world and the things of this world, it, it, it does damage our ability to advance the gospel for those reasons and so many more and so many more. We will never be about the business of kingdom advancement by trying to model the things that we do after the things of this world. And I got news for you, the world is really good at being worldly and the church is never going to beat the world at being worldly. So why don't we just be satisfied with being the church that Jesus said he would build and hold fast to the principles of God's Word. We could camp here, and maybe we need to camp here for a little while, but I want you to i want you to know, to make a mental note, that one of the first ways that the enemy will quench the work of God's Spirit in your life or the life of a church in general is by mixing with it worldly elements that may be hostile to the very cause that calls us together as the church of Jesus Christ. They said, let us be with you. Now, What you have here is the beginning of a people group known in the New Testament as the Samaritans. You remember when Jesus met with a Samaritan woman in John 4 at that well. And the Samaritan people were hated by the Jews. they're, They're... what I would call racist or prejudicial type issues that exist between the Jews and the Samaritans that are not right. But there's generational hostility that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. When the Assyrian Empire came in and took out the people of the north, the 10 northern tribes, they took part of the people out and they repopulated the rest of the northern kingdom with Gentile people. And the goal was that those Gentile people would intermarry with the Israelites that remained there, that it would dilute that culture, and it would, for all intents and purposes, erase them as a people. The product of those relationships are the people that we know in the New Testament as the Samaritans. So there's a semblance of Jewish religion about this people because of their ancestry. But there is also among them a mixing and mingling with various pagan backgrounds and forms of idolatry. They say, come, let us be a part of what God is doing among you. Now in verse 3, the Bible says, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in, the building a, in building a house for God, since we alone must build it for Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Now, when they couldn't join with them and be a a constant problem by virtue of their involvement, they turned to intimidation tactics. And the scripture says that they discouraged them in the work. If they couldn't be a part of it and hinder them in that way, they would just discourage them from the outside looking in. But that discouragement evolves into outright opposition and hostility in verse 5. The Bible says there they bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. So they were hostile against them wanting to stop anything that they that they hoped to do with regards to building back the temple following after the plan that God had for them. Now what they ultimately do and what you have in the remainder of chapter 4, chapter 5, and part of chapter 6 is that they essentially file a lawsuit against the people of Israel. They appeal to Cyrus, king of Persia. They say, go back in the history books, pull your records, and look and see that this people, they've been problematic. They've been trouble for us for a long, long time. Go back and look what Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes said about these people in times past. They have been problematic from beginning to end. And so there's a change of course by King Artaxerxes, who follows King Cyrus. In chapter 4, in verse number 12, we have uh, a, the, the, the reading of or um, a, a detail of this new decree that King Artaxerxes gives. He says in verse 12, Let it be known to the king that the Jews have come, or they're saying to him, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us at Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Now, the initial finding of Artaxerxes is down in verse 21. Artaxerxes says therefore issue an issue an order for these men to stop so that this city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me see that you do, said see that you not neglect this matter otherwise the damage will increase and the royal interest will suffer so what happens is Cyrus says go back and build it there's a lawsuit file that sort of hangs out there until there's a new king in Persia and the next king in Persia, Artaxerxes says, have them to halt the work. And beginning in verse 22 of chapter 4, there's a 16-year period of time when the people of Israel cease. They stop building the temple because of the lawsuit. Part of this is because of the fear of surrounding peoples. But there's something else, something spiritual that's happening in the heart of the people of Israel at the same time. They're, they're beginning to be motivated more by self-interest than spiritual interest. And so what happens when Haggai the prophet comes along, and we'll see this week's down the road when we look at Haggai, is, is that he says to them famously, is it proper that we now dwell in our paneled houses? In other words, we're living in the finest of houses, but the temple of the Lord lies in ruins. Haggai says it's, it's time to stop looking out for your own self-interest and get back to the business of rebuilding the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And eventually, after a period of 16 years, that's exactly what the people return to. Over in Ezra chapter 7, we, we have actually read of Ezra's return. In the outline, we said chapters 1 through 6 are about rebuilding the temple. Chapters 7 through 10 are about rebuilding the people. There is a a zealousness for the Lord early on in the book of Ezra. As they return, they're trying to do what God's word instructs them to do. But as is often the case with God's people, they quickly lose track. Their, their focus is lost, and they begin to look inward as to how they'll build up their own homes and, and, uh, and, and secure their own self-interest over the, the spiritual well-being of themselves or even of the nation. When Ezra the scribe returns, he revives the spiritual interest of the people of Israel. In chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says, after these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, I'll give you the short version of this genealogy, Ezra is a descendant of Aaron, which gives him a great deal of legitimacy, remember? There's a real concern in the book of Ezra with demonstrating that there's a harmony, a continuity that exists between the post-exile people and the pre-exile people. Because the pre-exile people were the direct recipients of the promise of God. Everywhere there's a direct connection established between the post-exile people and the pre-exile people. It's a little parenthesis in the text that yes, the promises of God in generations past are the promises of God for the present generation as well. A reminder for us. That yes, the promises of God for generations now well into the past are the promises of God for us, even in the present and well into the future. In Verse 6, the Bible says, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of Yahweh, his God, was on him. In verse 8, the Bible says, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of God was on him. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, pop quiz. There are two reasons that Ezra is fruitful in his efforts. Anyone want to volunteer what they might be? The first is pretty straightforward, and it's stated twice, twice, two times in our text, because God's hand was on him. The second is there in verse 10, the fact that Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. I had a little fit in family Bible study time this week. I won't always tell you about fits that I have when no one else is watching, but I'll share this one with you. Probably because the Lord has been ready to have a fit with me about the same issue over and over and over again. Sometimes it's challenging for me as a dad to be creative about what the content of our Bible studies are going to be at night. Some of you dads can bear witness with this. There are times when you know we're studying through a book and it's consistent, and we've been doing that for a while, but kind of got ready for a break. And my lazy go-to is a brief YouTube video, and we'll watch, and then we'll discuss what we heard in, in the video. Every preacher in the world is available now, and snippets on YouTube and smart TVs have made that very accessible. But we we look together. It was it's it's been four days now. We look together at Romans twelve, specifically the, where the passage says as much as is possible be at peace with all men and the bible talks about not pursuing vengeance not returning evil for evil but but leaving vengeance retribution to god vengeance is mine saith the lord and my my fit was this we're not studying another passage at my house until we learn how to do this one we we are we are masters and my we are we are but we are too masters of, of learning the principle of a passage without ever allowing that we be touched or moved by the content of that text. We begin to get very uncomfortable when, when it comes to pressing the application of biblical principles. We are masters of saying one thing with our mouths and believing something altogether different in our heart. And here's what I've observed of mankind, and this is a universal reality. We may not always behave according to the things that we say, but we always act on the things that we truly believe. And it may be six years from now, we're still, still studying Romans 12 at Brother Wade's house, but I can promise you before the Lord, we're not moving on until we learn how to do what that passage says, to live at peace with all men. And I, I, I think it's a reasonable thing for us to note in our hearts and minds that sometimes what we need is not more information, but real transformation that's born out of the application of the passage that is at hand. Now, I hope you'll chew on that a little bit, but I want you to note that Ezra was a scribe who was given not only to knowing about the law, but to obeying what he found in the law of God. Some of the most Hellish people that I've ever known were people that knew a lot about the Bible, but you'd never know it by the way they conducted their lives. And there's a callousness that comes along with our constantly familiarizing ourselves with biblical text, but never actually practicing the truths of the text in our personal lives. I, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that there's some of us that need to slow down in our Bible study, that need to slow down in our Bible reading, and make a real concerted effort at doing what the passage at hand instructs us to do. Ezra was fruitful in the ministry that God assigned to him because God's hand was on him, and because he was determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and to teach its statutes and its ordinances in Israel. There's sort of a spiritual progression that begins from this point forward in Ezra's account. Ezra gives himself to fasting and praying about his return to Israel. He invites others who plan to return with him to join us in this praying and fasting. There are moments of of praise and adoration. In chapter 7 and verse 27, the Bible says, Praise Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's mind to glorify the, the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage because I was strengthened by Yahweh, my God, and I gathered Israelite leaders to return with me. It's like Ezra just stops in the middle of a narrative and says, I just got to pause and praise the Lord. Clearly, there's a deep commitment to God in the heart of this man Ezra and his his influence and the power of his leadership is evident not only in the book of Ezra but in some significant ways as we come to the book of Nehemiah in our study on next week now the end of Ezra is really controversial what happens in uh in chapter 9 is that it comes to Ezra's attention th- that in this several years now of Israel living back in the promised land that they have taken up some of their former practices. Specifically, Israelite men have been marrying pagan women who had repopulated the land. In chapter 9 and verse 1, the Bible says, after these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples who did from the surrounding people whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. In other words, everyone's involved in this. And Ezra goes before God and he confesses the sin of the people and he asks that God would give him insight and direction and the leaders make themselves subject to Ezra's authority. They come before Ezra and they say, in essence, we'll do what you instruct us to do. Tell us what you want us to do. Now, the, the problem here is that you have, essentially, in New Testament terminology, unbelievers being yoked together with, with believers. And in the end, what happens is that the marriages that these Israelite men have with pagan women are dissolved. Essentially, Ezra instructs all of the men involved or intermarried with pagan women to dissolve those relationships. Now, this is just a reminder, I think, if we need it, at how getting outside the bounds of what God has ordained in in terms of marriage just makes all kinds of messes. And there are scenarios where there are not good, solid, black and white answers. I can give you one from today, from today's context. If you are a missionary in a Muslim country and you lead a Muslim man to faith in Jesus and he has 10 wives, what are you going to tell him to do with those 10 wives? In a culture where their survival is dependent upon the husband that they've attached themselves to. You see, you just just begin to make all kinds of messes when marriage begins to be manipulated or messed with. Now, the last chapters of Ezra are not where you want to begin at building your theology of marriage. This is not where you, you go to establish your understanding of how marriage and divorce or even remarriage is supposed to unfold. But what we do learn in the closing chapters of the book of Ezra Is that any time we identify sin in our life, we ought to be ready to take radical steps to purge ourselves of that sin. That's the message, in essence, of Ezra 9 and 10. That no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter the messes that may be created by our efforts at resolution we must do everything within our power to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. When it comes to the matter of sin in our life, we run headlong to holiness and we run with haste away from the things of this world. Take extreme measures to be reconciled to God when sin is discovered in your heart or even in the camp for that matter. Be ready, be willing. And and in essence, this is what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into life maimed than to enter into the place of everlasting torment whole. Do whatever is necessary in order to purge yourself of sin. I don't, I don't know what the answer is to emphasizing the, the urgency, the necessity, the need for personal holiness. I, I struggle with this in, in my own ministry. One of the things that I've noted about the ministry of G, both Jesus and Paul is that they both preached grace with, with such emphasis that they were often accused of being easy on holiness. In other words, well, in Romans 6, they said of Paul's ministry, we should sin more that grace may abound. This is what they're gleaning from Paul's ministry. He was such a grace preacher that that's the position that they came to. In Jesus' ministry, he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. He must be giving the thumbs up to great sin. And in neither case was, was that true. In both ministries, they did a magnificent job of holding forth the grace of God that always catches us when we fall. And the incredible standard of holiness embodied in the person and work of Jesus to which God has called each and every one of us. When we know grace as we should, when, when we know grace for what it really is, it ought, it, it ought to propel us to heights of faithfulness we've never known before. And never serve as a license that we would go about our life carelessly as though God were obligated to overlook our many transgressions. Take extreme measures to deal with the sin in your life. And what we'll see Sunday morning in our passage from Exodus 33 is that when we do, there, there is a special drawing near that God is pleased to grant when we walk with him in holiness.